You are listening to Think Theory Radio. 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 Hello and welcome to Think Theory Radio, the show that brings you topics outside the mainstream realm of thought and ideas to make you think. And I'm your host, Damien Perdue. And of course, I'm joined by Polly C. Yo, yo, yo. Today, the C stands for cerebral. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> and that's because we're talking about mind power. Ooh. The power of the mind. <laughs> <laughs> Was that the judge from Harvey Birdman? Yeah. Yeah. Men talk. Yeah, that's right. it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so I've, I know we've talked about, like, you know, mind, power of the mind, different kind of aspects of consciousness. But we've never really talked about specifically telepathy. Is telepathy real? Does it exist? Has that ever been proven? What of course it's real. Say? You told me what the topic was right when you walked in the room. Right. With my oh, mind. Incoming transmission. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's, there's, it's interesting when I was uh, looking up information for it, how many different studies there's been, you know, there's been on it throughout the years, uh, modern version ones, but also the different kind of beliefs. I mean, I think this is something that humans have believed existed for thousands of years, right? I mean, it's kind of something that there's always been somebody who believe that they could use their mind for other kind of powers or they could communicate from brain to brain. Um, and even, you know, like we were talking right before the show, there's aspects of everyday life that you might could tie into some aspects of, of telepathy where you think of somebody, you know, out of the blue, they show up or your phone rings and you kind of know who it is before you pick up the phone uh, you dream of somebody you see. Of course, him. they have the screen now that says <laughs> Damien's calling. Not me. I, put up, I block everybody. Uh, really? <laughs> <laughs> Who's this unknown it's caller? Like, I love like Star sixty nine. That was like the greatest invention right, ever. Yeah. There is no unknown caller when you have the power <laughs> of the mind. Mm-hmm. Don't you hate when there's like psychics and they get something wrong or like uh, yeah. <laughs> what was it? Uh, you walk into like a psychic's house or, you know, mm-hmm. place of business. And they're like, I, were, I wasn't expecting you. And you turn right around. Right. <laughs> they're clearly a hack. be expecting. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and yeah, and that's the other thing, too. I mean, there's been, you know, ever since the, the concept of telepathy in the late 1800s emerged, there's been all kind of, you know, uh, suspect people operating in the realms of this kind of parapsychology and you know and it's a lot of it's just hoax or just kind of way to get money um there's some interesting kind of uh the scientific research is is, into it is pretty interesting at least um some of the stuff i read and how they look into you know brain scans and people who are psychic and not psychic or telepathic or mentalist or whatever you want to call them uh and the way their brain acts you know differently under like uh you know mmris or uh, eeg tests and stuff like that but um but first going into the past because you have like a lot of instances in ancient history and with indigenous people that believe in telepathic powers like um, in ancient Egypt and Greek they believed in Greece they believed that you could communicate through dreams you could communicate to other people through your dreams which is kind of a form of telepathic power and it was written extensively in the in the dream book the ancient Egyptian uh, manuscript. And uh, I wonder how many grudges were started because of that not being the case, though. You know, like it's like, hey, I told you in that dream that you should be here tomorrow <laughs> at sunrise. And you were late. <laughs> no, I was there. Well, maybe the person <laughs> dreamed that they were there. Right. Yeah. You ever do that? Oh, like, yeah. Let's say like you got to go to work or something. Mm-hmm. And you take like a nap before work. But that entire dreamlike state during your nap is you like, yeah, I went to work. Oh, yeah. The whole shift. Mm-hmm. And you wake up and it's like, oh, no, I actually have to go now. Yeah. Or or the same thing or like that. But then you wake up and you think you have to go to work, but it's like a Saturday. Yeah. But you yeah. just, you know, because of that dream and everything, you're like, oh, oh I'm late. <laughs> um, but in Hinduism, they had a the, it's called mana. Paraya or Paryaya, in is, which is basically uh, uh, telepathy. Uh, Avadi is clairvoyance, and Kevala Jnana is 
omniscience. Um, what how do you pronounce that word? Um, omniscience. Right? Uh, oh, omniscience. Um, omniscience. Yeah. Omniscience. Yeah. <laughs> Omni science. Yes, Omni science. The science of everything. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also believed that the ancient uh, rishis, who were the priests of Hinduism, that they would uh, telepathically communicate to each other. I know like in Buddhist monks, when they meditate, they believe some kind of maybe telepathic powers. Um, and in uh, the Australian Aboriginal culture, there's also uh, belief that in telepathy, there's these uh, people called the clever men who were, I guess, kind of like shamans in Aboriginal society, and they believe they have telepathic powers. Uh, there's a word, gurungu, of the Mudurwari of the Aboriginals. Um, gura means string, and so the literal meaning of gurungu is magic string. And I believe that this was a communication of thought, like a magic string between minds, you know. Okay. And in uh, Hawaii, the, the kahunas, the native priests of Hawaii, believe that telepathic messages are sent directly from the uh, solar plexus. So you utilize your solar plexus to send it to somebody else's solar plexus. And according to the kahunas, the aka, or the etheric body... Of one person sends out a finger or thread, a substance to the solar plexus. So that's interesting, too, because it's a thread, which is similar to the magic string of the aboriginals. Okay. Um, And they believe that telepathic messages were sent along these threads. And you could go on and on different, you know, uh, cultures and different kind of ancient beliefs in that. But there was uh, this pretty cool story that I found about... Lauren McIntyre, who was a pretty famous National Geographic photographer, and he actually is the one that discovered the source of the Amazon River back hmm. in the 70s. He, um, he actually pinpointed this little pond, and I like... It took me a while. I was like looking it up online. I was trying to find it's so small. It's hard to find on like Google Maps. Like you have to like I had to like pinpoint these little villages and then find it and look it. And I actually I found it on Google Maps and I found some pictures of some uh, tourist explorer that went there. And it was like the only pictures of it was this guy who took it. Um, but it's this little pond that's on top of a mountain. And in he believed that this was the source of the Amazon, which is 4000 miles inland. Right. From okay. the uh, from the Atlantic, and years later in the in the two thousands, scientists actually tested the water and proved that yeah, this is the same water that flows all the way out into the ocean. And here, I thought the uh, scientific way of doing that was just like dropping a ping pong ball and like <laughs> and just see where it goes. <laughs> you let us know well, when first, it gets yeah. to Sao Paulo or Rio or wherever that thing ends. Yeah. But it's so small. It goes into this little oh. brook and then like goes out. Oh, Macapa, my bad. <laughs> I don't know my Brazilian geography. Oh, no, it's okay. Um, but that, uh, now they call it Laguna McIntyre or whatever. But before that... <laughs> <laughs> Laguna McIntyre. It sounds so Brazilian. Or Peruvian. It's actually in Peru. Peru, yeah. Um, hey, I don't know, man. I'll believe anything after uh, Argentina has a guy named McAllister that just won the World Cup with them. So oh, there you go. There's a story behind that, I guess, the okay. Irish-Argentinian. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Well, that's where all the Nazis went. <laughs> yes, you know yeah. Come on. That's where Hitler's chilling. We talked He's about that. He's still alive. Yeah. <laughs> Hanging out with Tupac. He'd be old now. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's got the, you know, he's got some kind of philosopher's stone, ancient blood <laughs> thing that he's using to stay alive. <laughs> and he has telepathic powers. No, I'm just joking. But before Mr. McIntyre uh, found the source of the Amazon, he was actually, because he's, now this is a very, what what I found interesting is that Lauren McIntyre is, is not just a famous national, you know, uh, geographic photographer, but he's, he's uh, you know, this guy has many attributes you know he was uh he was in uh, the military he's traveled he's explored all over the world um especially in south america extensively and he's pretty well respected this isn't somebody who's just you know come out and like always talking about kind of woo stuff and 
you know, and trying to sell or hawk a book or anything like that. And it was years really before he, you know, he, he told his, you know, uh, bosses at National Geographic about this incident. But it was years before he like fully expounded on what happened to him. And basically he was uh, – he was trying to find the source. He'd been looking for the source of the of the of the river for for years, and he actually um, he got kidnapped one time in one of his, or he got lost probably, and then got found, aka kidnapped, by the Mayuruna natives, the Mayuruna tribe, um, sometimes referred to as the Cat People because of their uh, distinct nose piercings worn by the women. This was in 1969, um, several years before he found the source. And he was, uh, this. They're, they're a wandering tribe, nomadic, and they like wander around the Amazon River and never had been contacted by a modern society. Um, the only reports were from, you know, some, some missionaries, some bandits and adventurers, you know, that saw them but never actually uh, contacted or talked to them. So when they approached McIntyre deep in the forest, he basically, he to win them over, he gave them trinkets. <laughs> it's all good colonialists do now. Uh, but he gave them some uh, presents of cloth and mirrors, which I guess they happily accepted. And But then he noticed that their jewelry was mostly made of uh, human skin and bones. So he was starting to get a little bit nervous. And then they handed him a skull as a drinking cup. (laughs) So he really thought he was not he was not getting out of this one. (laughs) Um, But he had no common language, you know, with these people. Obviously, he didn't know how to communicate with them. And so he thought, you know, he wasn't going to survive. But he uh, basically he complied with the masters and the leaders of this tribe, followed them through the jungle, and he was there. He was captive, or I don't know if i say he was captive, but, you know, possibly, for two months, right? And he lost his clothing, lost his camera, lost the roll of film, um, lost total connection to the outside world. And he was actually, he believed that he was communicating telepathically with the tribe's leader. And he also, he became aware of some kind of a background noise, like this constant background noise, which he termed beaming. And that later he would, you know, he would think or he would realize that this beaming was actually the tribe's collective mental chatter, also infused with their spoken words and their thoughts. So he believes that this whole tribe communicated telepathically with each other. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he actually, he made a, a daring and dangerous escape on a raft made of fragile balsa wood, which is the, which they make those little planes with. He used to, was it the, my physics class, we made bridges out of balsa wood. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, he believed that he was on this, like, profound spiritual expedition with this tribe and um, that this journey connected them with all with the birth of space time. Right. And that the uh, this pursuit journeying with this tribe led them to the beginning of linear time. And they were like far outside the parameters of, of what we would understand. And he actually, uh, he would meet them again, too, once in the late 70s. So about 10 years later, he would meet these, this tribe again. And he believes uh, that this was real and this happened to him, um, that this was very mystical and, and amazing experience to him. And when he in, I believe it was 1972, is when he found, uh, 71, when he found the uh, source of the Amazon River, which he had to like convince his bosses of National Geographic after, especially after being kidnapped for two months, they did not want to let him go back. <laughs> but he's like, no, I really think I can find it. So they let him go. And when asked about how did you find, it, I mean, this is a tiny little pond on top of you know the mountain, and he basically he said the mountain was calling him, that he had he really believed that he was feeling like the mountain was calling to him, and that that's how he found it. <laughs> um, 
So I thought it was just an interesting uh, little anecdote about this guy, you know, because uh, if it's true. And then, you know, I thought about kind of like as I was reading other articles about uh, indigenous tribes and kind of ancient belief in telepathy, a lot of what they would say is that especially if you, you know, you have this like an indigenous tribe like the Mayuruna. They exist outside of our type of society, so they don't have the handicaps of technology, right? They don't have the the worry or stress of thinking about daily life. They don't have to worry about paying your bills. They're just living their life so that their mind can actually focus on being telepathic, right? If there even is, maybe to them, if it's true, is just a natural kind of a way of, of being. Like like speaking, you know, for us, once you learn how to talk, you just you just do it. You don't think about talking. You just speak. Um, so that, I just noticed that that's kind of an interesting thought that if we are becoming handicapped more and more by the technology that aids us, which in modern times you can see kind of uh, a parallel aspect of that is how now, you know, we used to have these mapping centers in our brains where we would learn, you know, you had to learn your your neighborhood or your city or your town or your country, or whatever. And you'd have to have that in your mind. Like London taxi drivers have a wider part of the, the brain that act that is the map center is bigger and more active in their mind than most people because they have to remember all these different streets. But now that people have GPS, that part of the brain is is less and less being used. And when they do scans of people... Um, they they look at these parts of the brain and they're getting less and less used. Same thing with mathematics, how, you know, we don't like people think of you, you used to have to think of calculations in your mind when you're in school. But now the kids don't. Right. And they, they rely on calculators, they rely on their phones and parts of the brain are shrinking. So maybe there is an aspect of the brain that we don't know that we did, we've cut out because we didn't have to use it anymore. Right. We just don't know. Hmm. Hmm. Um, so if you guessed it through your telepathic powers, we have to take a quick break. Uh, but when we come back, we're going to talk about telepathy in the modern world as far as like from the 1800s on and how telepathy was coined, all the different experiments. And then we'll get into the technology of telepathy right after this. Think Theory Radio. Welcome back to Telepathic Theory Radio. See, I knew you were going to hit the post there. <laughs> yeah, you knew. I could tell. You were saving it, saving mm-hmm. that volume level. Oh, because we communicate. Exactly. <laughs> the mind. <laughs> well, but then that's like, you know, what about that aspect of it? It's not telepathy, but musicians kind of know, mm-hmm. you know, how to communicate sort of yeah. uh, non-verbally. Yeah, nonverbal communication. I mean, there's mm-hmm. been a lot of studies on that as well. You know, is nonverbal communication a form of telepathy or is it just, uh, you know, you're learning each other's kind of which, – which I think what I was saying in the beginning of the show too kind of lends itself to like, well, what is telepathy and mm-hmm. what, what in our daily lives do we have that connects us to each other um, that we could – you know, maybe you're not necessarily reading each other's minds, but you kind of – can feel or sense, you know, what someone's going to do, what they're going to say. Um, through a lot of these, like, scientific studies, they've realized that part of the, um, it's like the hippocampal region of the brain, which I guess affects empathy. Hmm. So they've really, uh, there's some kind of connection between people who, who they believe are telepathic and the empathic regions of the brain. And so maybe, like, being more empathetic and you kind of, or like you can understand or feel what other people are feeling is a form of it as well. Um, but what is telepathy in general? I mean, telepathy uh, comes from the Greek words uh, tele, meaning distant, and pathos, which is a feeling or perception or passion. Um, so it's kind of like, you know, feeling from a distance, essentially, right? But the term was coined in 1882 by the scholar uh, Frederick W.H. Myers, who was a founder of the Society for Physical Research. 
And the Society for Physical Research uh, basically began um, in the late 19th century and was trying to figure out a kind of mental phenomenon like animal magnetism, telekinesis, paranormal phenomenon. And uh, physical researcher Eric Dingwall, Ding, Mr. Dingwall, <laughs> uh, criticized the founding members of uh, the uh, SPR for trying to prove telepathy rather than objectively analyze whether or not it even existed, right? So try to figure out it exists first before you try to prove it. Um, and that goes with a lot of the modern experiments. Some people, you know, they'll look at it and say, well, they didn't really, you know, they're, they're going about it in the non-scientific route, right? Um, and But they're looking it up. I said, who was the, who do we think was the first psychic, right, or the first telepath recognized and supposedly it's a man named daniel dunglas dunglas not douglas dunglas dunglas yeah. like having no dung dunglas <laughs> exactly. okay that's what i thought you said I yeah. was... uh daniel dunglas home and i guess he was uh back in the uh, late 1800s as well um but i believe this before the term was coined so this was uh like more in the 1850s and he was uh he actually like traveled he performed for you know kings and queens and um emperors and and czars and even uh and their staff and their staff <laughs> sorry and their jesters yeah um even uh he performed for charles darwin mark twain um Charles Dickens, but I guess Charles Dickens and Harry, and Harry Houdini did not like him. And in fact, uh, I could see Houdini being being a hater, but what yeah. did Dickens have against him? I don't know. It doesn't. It, what I read, it doesn't really say. But it does say that Her, uh, Mr. Harold Houdini. I'm starting to gather that like maybe Dickens was like stuck up or something. You nah, know, he's, he's a brilliant writer, mm -hmm. so I mean, you know, I could imagine that he's just like, oh, this flim flam man. I'm I could totally see, yeah, for buy sure, buy into his tricks. What is this? Hogwash. Yeah, and Houdini just being a hater. Well, Houdini dedicated a whole chapter in one of his books to uh, Mr. Mister Dunglas. Just talking about just, just trashing him. Yeah. Yeah. Saying that he was, oh, it's all just a, you know, just a ruse. Just trying to get money. Doesn't that just break the magician's code? I don't know. <laughs> well, not if this guy's not really calling himself a That's magician. True. Though. That's true. You know, he's saying that, oh, he's a telepath. And he supposedly would make objects move and that he would elongate his torso by like a foot and all kind of weird <laughs> stuff. I love the old 1800s, like, illusionist magic kind of weird. You know what I mean? That's like, uh, you see people nowadays, they got that outfit where it looks like they're carrying their head. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like yeah, kind of yeah. like finagling yeah. away, and I'm wondering if like the origins of that were in the 19th century. It could you know? be. I mean, I've definitely seen, and you see like two uh, videos of like in like in India, like people who can contort their bodies and turn their mm -hmm. heads like all the way around and stuff like that. Um, but sometimes I read, I'm like, man, were people back then like just super gullible or like? Were, but I mean, well, think about it. You know, we've been exposed to a lot of different things in our lives yeah. through just pop culture. Mm -hmm. Back then, they didn't have exactly, as much stuff. Right. It was like you might see something in a book or a magazine, maybe. Yeah. You know, if you want to call it a magazine, if there's photography back then. But, you know, any sort of, you know, it's all like pictures and mm -hmm. books, you know, and ideas that are being transferred rather than like, oh, yeah, this guy can do this. Watch this trick. But you know? I mean, he, like he, you know, performed in front of people. But I guess, you know, if you've never seen like actual smoke and mirrors, smoke and mirrors could actually, tr you know, trick we you. live in a day and age where you can Photoshop or like After Effects any sort of video or picture sure. and people still believe that's true. And then there's you even the reverse correct. of that where people are just skeptical of everything, everything. now, <laughs> you know, um, but I'm wondering too, that if we can fall for some of the stuff nowadays that, you know, most people or some people would think, Oh, that's clearly fake. You could see there, you know, yeah. that, uh, you know, whatever the, the, the image, you know, that they didn't, they didn't completely remove or the, the <laughs> shadow was in the wrong spot, you know, oh, yeah. um, things like that. But I would imagine, yes, that, that it would be pretty easy to yeah. trick people yeah. back then. And I guess too, if you had a, a knowledge of, of whatever technology at the time that you could utilize to create this illusion, smoke and mirrors. Yeah. And people didn't know, you know, about that technology, mm -hmm. you, know, you could kind of, you know, mess with people. Plus, 
you know, people smoked a lot of opium back then, too. So. <laughs> <laughs> They're just in an opium haze. He was floating off the ground, man. So that, well, yeah, and also uh, amongst all sorts of other chemicals and drugs that for people, sure, you know, for sure. even yeah. like over the counter. Absinthe. <laughs> you know, yeah. like uh, if you've got ghosts in your blood, take cocaine for right. that. Here's a drop of mercury. <laughs> yes, yeah. Mm. Does the body good. <laughs> uh, but since then, I mean, there's been like, so many different cases to everyone. You know, it, that's the thing, too. It's like there's a lot of like very uh, well-established scientists that believe in it. Um, and there's been years who of different case studies. I mean, from the late 19th century on through today, people are still trying to figure out, is it real? Is it not? Um, I mean, I could go. You know, looking up, if you just look up like the Wikipedia page of telepathy, you will see just all these different case studies, you know, on and on from, you know, I, I can't even read them all because there's too many. <laughs> um, and I want to get more into kind of like the more modern one. Um, but yeah, there's just, it just goes on and on. You can find all these different ones. And of course, there's, which we'll get into a little bit, is the most famous is the, like the CIA experiments with psychic powers and everything. Um, and then, one of what I was talking about, some kind of famous scientists. Uh, I saw this guy on, speaking of this, the Stargate project, there's the Third Eye Spies, which I've talked about before the documentary about it. And a uh, physicist, very well-established, uh, Nobel, Nobel Prize winner, uh, Brian Josephson, who actually has a kind of physics process named after him because he predicted that electrical current would flow or tunnel between two superconducting materials. Uh, so back that was back in uh, 1962. He won the Nobel Prize for that. Or no, no, actually, uh, in 73, he won it because um, that, that's when his theory was confirmed. Um, but after that, after this in the 70s, after he won that, he got totally into studying the the brain, the human brain, and links between quantum physics and parapsychological and paranormal phenomenon. Um, like telepathy and extrasensory perception. That's another word like ESP. You know, ESP, I feel like you don't hear it. I feel like in the 80s I heard ESP all the time, you know. Well, what killed it was the sports network. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't talk about ESP yeah. with someone being like, hey, what about that big game? Right. You, know? hmm, you might be right. Well, because the then the joke all the time is like, oh, do you got ESP? No, I got ESPN and HBO, man. And look who owns, who owns ESPN. Disney? Disney. Dun, 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 dun. Where are you going with this? Uh, well, who, you know, don't get me started on Walt Disney, what he <laughs> believed in. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, but back to Mr. Uh, Brian Josephson. Yeah, he's I mean, he kind of like gave up his whole career. I mean, this guy, although he is he's tenured at, uh, I believe, Cambridge University. And so, you know, when I saw in the interview, that's what he's kind of saying. He was like, once I was tenured, I could just. I could do what I want. He's like, a lot of scientists believe this stuff, but they won't ruin their career. You know, they won't even talk about it because it could, it could ruin their career. And he, uh, so he got into it and he uh, started studying more about the brain, psychological, you know, experiments, trying to pr predict kind of uh, different ways that it could work. Um, he got really into Eastern mysticism and uh, parapsychology and in the uh, interview in Physics World in 2002, he was saying that physicists have an emotional response when they hear anything connected with parapsychology. Their opinion of parapsychology research is not based on evaluation of the evidence, but on a dogmatic belief that all research in this field is false. Um, and he really believes that there is some kind of connection between quantum physics and consciousness. And uh, Roger Penrose, who's a famous mathematician, also believes something similar. I don't know if he believes in telepathy, but um, it's interesting when you get some, you know, some of these kind of very well-established scientists who who will put their kind of career and life on the line to say that they believe in this stuff. Um, and similar is some of the scientists that were in, involved in the uh, Stargate project or Project Stargate, like Russell Targ and uh, one of their, uh, which we talked about before, so I don't really need to get too far into it. But uh, there were some other um, scientists who worked on it, like one was uh, Jessica Utz, who's a statistics professor at University of California, Davis. Um, and she went on to also and also uh, Ray Hyman was a psychology professor at the University of Oregon. 
um, who's who's a noted debunker of psychic phenomenon. Um, but I guess they would work together and uh, do more and more experiments. Um, and then uh, I guess their firm was also contracted by the CIA for the, the Project Stargate. And one of the uh, – the interesting one, the guy is um, – I'm trying to find his name. is, is a uh, was actually a Army veteran. His name was Joseph McMoneagle, who was one of the most successful – um, remote viewers and remote viewing was kind of one of the aspects of this telepathic thing. Um, and it's, uh, you know, if you look at Project Stargate, it has its its wins and its losses. Um, and but one I, I know I, I mentioned before was how they actually used it to find a downed Soviet Union uh, plane. Uh, I believe it was in Africa. And she told uh, President Carter Jimmy Carter and he, they, she gave him the coordinates. One of one of their remote viewers, and uh, they found it. They actually found this plane where she said it would be. Um, I think they also used it to find some fugitive that I believe was in Wyoming. They used a psychic, hmm. pinpointed it. Um, so there, you know. But then there's also plenty of times that, that they failed, and also like they worked with uh, what's his name. Um, Yuri Geller, remember that guy? He was a famous kind of psychic um, who one of these were the professional psychics who were assisting in the CIA program. But he eventually came out and was like, no, you know, basically admitted what he was doing was not real. But then he became a, a famous mentalist and illusionist. Did he cash those FBI checks? or uh... I would. <laughs> it was CIA. CIA, you know? sorry. So you can't return anything to the CIA because you're not supposed to know where they are. Yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> and the whole, you remember the Men Who Stare at Goats movie? Yeah. That's, that's yeah. a great movie. Yeah. That's based on the Project Stargate. That's right. That's mm-hmm. right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just had a flood of memories of that one just now. Might have to go home and watch that. That's tonight. a good one, yeah. <laughs> um, but there's been tons. So there's also been um, recently different uh, experiments with ESP, telepathy, clairvoyance and stuff. And there are different breakdowns in what they believe scientifically could be part of it. One is mirror neurons. And that in um, in many studies that demonstrate you can read other people's minds because we have neurons that act as automatic mirrors. And that you can grasp the intentions, emotions of other automatically because of this. In 2007, a psychology professor, uh, Gregor Domes, and his colleagues found evidence that the ability to interpret subtle social cues, like we were talking about earlier with bands and stuff like that, can be enhanced by oxytocin, a hormone that increases trust and social approach behavior. Um, and then there's long-distance communication in a study in 2014 conducted by psychiatrist Carls Grau. And his colleagues found that brain-to-brain communication via the Internet is possible. Dun-dun-dun-dun. <laughs> um, and we'll get into some of that when we get to the, to the tech part. Um, invisible communication. In uh, 2005, biologist Rupert Sheldrake and his research associate Pam Smart recruited 50 experimental participants. Um, and they were using... Uh, they included four potential emailers and one minute before a prearranged time. The participants had to guess who would send it. Of 552 trials, 43% of the guesses were correct. This was much higher than the 25% where they were thinking that it would just, if it was just chance, right? So there's a lot of these, like in, um, in Project Stargate, they said they usually they had about a 67% success rate. Sometimes they had a 72% success rate. What I find interesting, too, about the uh, Stargate is that if you ever look up articles about it, it says that basically because of failures, um, the CIA didn't want to fund it anymore. But when I watched the documentary, one of the um, heads of the – I don't know if it was the uh, McMonagall guy or, or another person in it. But he was saying that when they approached the head of the CIA, the CIA, the, the head director had changed at the time. And this was in the mid-90s who uh, – and his name escapes me, but he was a very um, conservative Christian. And that when they gave him all the information, the studies they had been doing for the last 20 years, he basically looked at them and said, this is the work of the devil. (laughs) Like what you guys are doing, like I'm not funding this anymore. 
So I don't know which you know which one is true. If it was really like some kind of religious aspect to them defunding the program, or was it really you know um, just because it wasn't didn't produce enough uh, you know enough uh, good findings. And, you know, the, the interesting thing, too, is that the whole project was basically started. And there was a whole bunch of different other projects with different names like Gondola and all these other ones um, that kind of got mushed into Project Stargate. But uh, it, most of them were started because they had heard that the Soviet Union was working on psychic powers and, you know, trying to, you know, read people's minds. Because, of course, you, know, you want to read people's minds or control your soldiers and stuff like that, you know, because that's the other aspect of this is mind control. It's like there's one part of it. It's like, yeah, let's study this to see if we can communicate brain to brain, right? Because that would be such a faster way to communicate. It would be uh, much more, you know, uh, enriching, much more true, I guess. Um, but then there's the mind control aspect, like how much of it is for mind control. Um, and it took me down a whole other rabbit hole that maybe I'll do another show on with like, you know, frequencies and mind control and stuff like that. Um, but uh, when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about technology that they're using. Can telepathy be possible through modern technology? That, right after this on Think Theory Radio. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. Welcome back to Thought Control Radio, where we are controlling your minds through radio frequencies. Seesaw resistance. <laughs> you actually don't actually like this show. I'm just making you think you like this show. <laughs> keep listening. Keep listening. <laughs> um, speaking of uh, Saturdays at six right. o'clock, WCPT. <laughs> It was so subliminal. Yeah. <laughs> That's what you got to do, like, while I'm talking, just in the yeah, background. Yes. Saturdays. Saturdays. Radio. Tell your friends. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, before even the technology part, I was thinking of uh, also there's belief in kind of uh, animal telepathy. You know, like how, how do birds communicate, you know, when they move in these flocks and these crazy, you know, directions together. Um, and, and I remember reading articles about how birds and the birds and the bees, but how they actually there is a a uh, quantum signature that they utilize and they they it ties them to the Earth's magnetic field and they're able to um, know where they're going based on that. So I do kind of think that there is some kind of quantum aspect to consciousness in general, um, which could lend itself to a telepathic uh, reception or some kind of or perception, I should say, some kind of power. Um, and it could be, too, that it's something that our brains maybe or most most of us, our brains just can't fully utilize. Right. Like it's something either that we haven't evolved into yet or we've devolved from and that. Um, maybe there are some people and maybe they're like mutants or something and they, for whatever reason, have a different aspect of the brain that allows them to have this kind of extra sensory perception. Um, but, of course, not to be outdone, science and technology, they want to make it happen, right? They want telepathy to be a thing. And... They want to create brain-to-brain -brain interfaces, and there's been several different experiments on this. Um, one is a scientist at the University of Washington and Carnegie Mellon University created a brain-to-brain -brain interface system that allows one or more people uh, called senders to influence the decisions of an, of an individual called a receiver with the goal of helping the receiver play a Tetris-like game that only the senders can see. Um, Although preliminary with the influence of senders used to help a receiver win an unseen game of Tetris, this development makes it clear that a future in which our brains are part of an interconnected social system could be on the horizon. And basically what they did was they drew on their past work with brain-to-brain -brain interfaces 
And the senders uh, wore EEG caps, which allowed the researchers to measure brain activity via electrical signals and watched a Tetris-like game with a falling shape that needed to be rotated to fit in a row at the bottom of the screen. In another room, the receiver sat with the transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS, apparatus, uh, positioned near the visual cortex. The receiver could only see the falling shape, not the gap that it needed to fill, so their decision to rotate the block was not based on the gap that needed to be filled. If a sender thought the receiver should rotate the shape, they would look at the light flashing at 17 hertz for a yes. Otherwise, they would look at a light flashing at 15 hertz for no. Based on the frequency that was more apparent in the sender's EEG data, the receiver's TMS apparatus would stimulate their visual cortex above or below a threshold, signaling the receiver to make the choice of whether to rotate. With this experiment, the receiver was correct 81% of the time. Um, And what makes the study particularly interesting is the incorporation of a situation where the senders don't agree. And where one sender wants to rotate the shape this way, one wants to do it the other way, or they don't want to do it at all. Um, To test that, the researchers intentionally made one sender less reliable than the other to see if the receiver could figure out whether one sender was more likely to be correct than the other. And that uh, saw the receiver was statistically more likely to act on information from the more reliable sender than from the less reliable one. And but if you look at pictures, it's literally they have like all these nodes like all over the head, like the near all like just all over the head. Not something you can walk around with every day. Um, another another uh, experiment looking to use telepathic communication through technology, and this was a pretty recent experiment, or several years ago. Um, A person in India said hola and ciao to three other people in France. Uh, The team was from uh, members come from Barcelona-based research institute Starlab, French firm Auxilum Robotics, and Harvard Medical School. They uh, published their findings in the journal uh, PLOS1, or PLOS1, and one of the... uh, one of the researchers, trying to find his name, was a uh, oh uh, co-author Alvaro Pascual Leon. Uh, this experiment was successful. The court, the correspondents neither spoke nor typed nor even looked at one another. And he freely concedes that the test was more a proof of concept than anything else, and the technique still has a long way to go. Um, first, the team had to establish binary code equivalents of letters. Uh, for example, H would be 00111. Then, again, with the EEG sensors attached to the scalp, the sender moved either his hands or his feet to indicate a 1 or a 0. The code then passed to the recipient over email. On the other end, the receiver was blindfolded with a tr- another TMS system on his head, and the TMS headset stimulated the recipient's brain, causing him to see quick flashes of light. And the flash was equivalent to the one and the and the to a one and a blank was a zero. From there, the code was translated back into a text. Now, it took about seventy minutes to relay the message, though, so it's it's not very efficient. <laughs> um, there is a bit of contention about the degree to which the approach was actually novel. Um, IEEE Spectrum reports that this recent study is quite similar to one conducted at the University of Washington, as well. Um, now, what they're thinking is outside of medicine, brain-to-brain communications could find applications in many disciplines like soldiers, of course, are going to use them in the military, uh, for instance, could use the technology on the battlefield, sending commands and warning to one another. And civilians, you know, business people could use it to send cues to partners during negotiations or our beloved baseball. You could have pitchers and catchers could avoid sign stealing during baseball games. How about that for a baseball odyssey? The first telepathic pitcher and catcher. They're getting there. Yeah. Step closer, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> Just wait until teams start installing, like, uh, you know, internal communication devices. Right. <laughs> now, that's, you know, that like, it's some interesting uh, 
concepts. Of course, then you tie in Elon Musk's Neuralink, right? And Facebook, uh, I forget what their thing was called, but they had another kind of meta brain link thing. And I guess uh, Mark Zuckerberg really believes that the future of communication will be telepathic. You know, so you could easily see us going down the road of like brain implants you know for telepathic abilities whether it's it's to communicate between people or just to communicate to machines because um, i did read an interesting article that was saying okay let's say we do this we do create interface for brain-to-brain communication but how does it necessarily work when it's so hard to interpret people uh in language in speaking language let alone someone's thoughts how would you interpret people's thoughts you know or you know that still doesn't distinct you know uh extinguish people's languages so you still would have that problem right uh, but i thought that was interesting that kind of like yeah how would you th- you know if you started talking to somebody in their mind how would you interpret someone's thoughts or like how would that work even is it words is it images right yeah i don't know yeah i don't it's, know it's weird and then so that's like a whole other it's like they can, they're, they're working on the interfaces which, like I said, they're very kind of hunky and uh, slow. I mean, it's took, what, 70 minutes to relay this one message just to say hola or whatever, <laughs> you know. So it's, it's not really there yet, but you, they, they want it to work. They really want it to work. They want it to work so bad that supposedly companies already have the ability to decode your brain waves. <laughs> I was going to save this for a weird science, but then I was like, this <laughs> kind of, to pass yeah, off. like this kind of fits. Um, and this is, uh, I guess it's a, a Duke university futurist named Nita Farahani. Um, it was a, uh, a recent presentation at the world economic forum in Davos. It was called the battle for your brain. And, she said, you may be surprised to learn it's a future that has already arrived. Artificial intelligence has enabled advances in decoding brain activity in ways we never before thought possible. What you think, what you feel, it's all just data. Data that in large patterns can be decoded using artificial intelligence. Using wearable devices, whether hats, headbands, tattoos placed behind the ear or earbuds... The sensors can pick up EEG signals and use AI-powered devices to decode everything from emotional states, concentration levels, simple shapes, and even your pre-conscious responses to numbers, i.e. an invitation to steal your bank card's pin without you even knowing. That's the other thing. People, you know, like, if you have the telepathic power, like, some people might have it better than others. And you could peer in and be like, mm, what's uh, Paul's credit card number there? Check that out. <laughs> Um, yeah, so it's, uh, she continued saying, uh, the coming future, and I mean near-term future, these devices become the common way to interact with all other devices. It is an exciting and promising future, but also a scary future. Uh, surveillance of the human brain can be powerful, helpful, useful, transform the workplace, and make our lives better. It also has a dystopian possibility of being used to exploit and bring to the surface our most secret self. Dun, 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 dun. And it's interesting because I was reading this, and I literally just read this short story by uh, Mr. Uh, Philip K. Dick. Um, if you're playing at home, the Think Theory Radio uh, game. <laughs> uh, he had a short story called The Hoodmaker, which they actually made into uh, – into a TV and the, the TV show called Electric Dreams, where they um, did uh, little shorts based on his on his short stories. But the Hoodmaker was about a futuristic society where basically the <clears throat> government can read your thoughts. They have there was some kind of uh, radioactive explosion that produced these people that had telepathic ability, and they started working for the government and basically started scanning everybody. They're called the Teeps. And they would scan everybody's brain and make sure that everybody complied and everybody was loyal to the government. Um, and these scientists who were working on some kind of experiment, not, nothing to do with that, figured out that this alloy that they had created can block the teeps 
uh, searches or their their scans, I should say, right? So they started to make these kind of just headbands, like these metal headbands they called hoods, and they would send them out to people anonymously. But they were like picking people to send them to, so they couldn't get scanned. It just feels a little bit too much like the tinfoil hat trying to. Uh, <laughs> I don't want the government stealing my thoughts, man. That's that, you know what? That's interesting. I have to look up because this story was written in like 1954 or okay. something like that. Yeah. Um, now we all know Philip K. Dick was way ahead of his time, mm-hmm. so maybe he's a modern day prophet, really. Um, but if you, but I'm wondering when that. I have to look up when that term was uh, coined. Because that does sound oddly like that, you know. And so basically, you know, in the story, there's this one uh, professor who gets the the hood in the mail and he puts it on. And then all of a sudden he's getting chased. This mob's, oh, he doesn't want to be, he doesn't want his thoughts to be read. Get him, get him, you know. And uh, he escapes. He ends up meeting the hood maker and he tells him the whole breakdown of what's going on. All right, so Vice Magazine wrote that the tinfoil hat in popular culture can be traced back in a very weird short story written in 1927 by Julian Huxley titled The Tissue Culture King. Oh, it goes back pretty far, Mm -hmm. 100 years. So maybe Philip K. Dick got inspiration from that. Yeah, yeah, that might be right. Hmm, I'm going to have to add that to my list of reading materials. Julian Huxley, any relation to uh, Aldous? I don't know. Uh, That'd be interesting, too, if the guy who writes about tinfoil hats is also, like, related to the guy who dropped acid and wrote some really cool books. (laughs) The door is a perception, people. Uh, Apparently he influenced Aldous Huxley. Okay. Did he change his name? (laughs) Was he so influenced? Maybe. I'm changing my name. Well, now I'm honor. It's the end of the show, and I, I need to go down a rabbit hole. What's going on? Here? Hey, hey, that's another. That's a whole other show we could do. Aldous Huxley, psychedelics, uh, the other Huxley you mentioned. <laughs> Save it. All right, all right, all right. Thanks for everybody for listening, and I hope you think what I think. <laughs> that you'll listen again next week and every Saturday, six to seven p.m. right here on WCPT H twenty Think Theory Radio. Yeah.